This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Hi, I'm Alan Katz. Welcome to Episode 9 of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, The Making of Bordello of Blood. A bonus episode, if you will. Getting the Tales from the Crypt gang back together again was quite a blast, as you've heard. It was cathartic, too. Swapping war stories was therapeutic for us and highly entertaining for our audience. Win-win. The character almost everyone couldn't get enough of was Joel Silver, one of Tales from the Crypts and Bordello of Blood's high-powered executive producers. Joel really is the epitome of larger-than-life. He's notorious for being a massive bundle of hypomanic energy dressed up in pajamas. Bordello's first assistant director, Lee Knipperberg, coined the name Pajaminator to describe Joel as he descended on our set in Vancouver. What's most telling, I think, is that despite the craziness that working with Joel entailed, you've heard the stories, the word bonkers doesn't do him justice. Most of us would absolutely be open to working with Joel again, including those of us who were fired by him. For the last episode of Season 4, our second on the show, Gil cajoled Joel into directing an episode. Split personality starring Joe Pesci, Burt Young, an uncredited Joey Pantoliano, and the Citroen twins, Jacqueline and Kristen. Would you believe it? There's a story. I, I wanted to j- jump back in time with you guys while I have you, just to, to, uh, to remember what it was like when Joel directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> well joel i had the same i had the same argument with him with the phone gil adler because i said joel joel you're directing the episode you know as a director i need your full attention and jan de bont was shooting it with jan oh that's right jan de bont he, he wanted jan to be his, his DJ. and these two young and these two young girls that looked like they were dead <laughs> they're just so white yeah uh, they were playing in the park and, and they were an interesting an interesting, uh, interesting young women, uh, yeah. interesting personalities. Well, so, so I would say to Joel, yeah. you, you can't, you can't be on the phone. You know, we're, we're setting things up. We're setting things up. We're, we're, what's, we're, why can't I be on the phone? We're setting things and up. I, I said, said, you got to put the phone away. You're, you're the director this week. You can't. You're not the producer. I'm the producer. You're the director. You have to put it away. He goes, what are you talking about? I'm the producer. I go, okay. You're the producer. You can't have a phone. What are you telling me? I'm not the producer. I'm the producer. You're the producer too, but I'm the producer. I said, Joel, this week, you're not the producer. This week, you're the director. He goes, out of your fucking mind. I'm the producer all the time. I said, okay, you're the producer all the time. But this week as the director, you can't use the phone on the set when we're working. So I got him to walk off the set. But then Jan would come over to me and he'd go, I need Joel. And I said, well, he's right over there. You and so I would go over to Joel because Jan said, you'll get him. So I go over to Joel and Joel would, again, with the phone, he would be, you know, pushing me away. Go away. Go away. I'm on the phone. I go, Joel, Jan needs you. And, and I need you right now. You know, we don't do this in between phone calls. You do the phone calls in between our shooting. So I got into a big argument with him that lasted, you know, for a long time. I mean, he really was pissed off at me. Um, and I remember weeks later, you know, he would really? he, just, just after, after he was done directing. Oh, yeah. Totally pissed off at me for for being as rude as I was, because I said, you're not the producer. And also that you can't use the phone on the set. 
And then, you know, it's funny because Dick found out about it, Dick Donner. And when, when the three of us were together, I mean, anytime Dick wanted to wind Joel up, <laughs> he would say, how do you come to How do you come to a set as a director with a phone? Leave your phone at home. I never bring my phone. I'm sure when Gil directs, he doesn't bring his phone. And, and he would just wind Joel up and Joel would go up and down. So easy uh, to, both to, of us. To, to, to push his buttons. <laughs> Hellstrom and Crypt, the executive producers, used us as kind of a, a, a testing ground for first-time directors. A lot of writers who had never directed before, but you know, there, some of them had screenplays. Donner had a couple of guys. He had screenplays that he wanted to executive produce, and they would, they would direct it. Uh, Peter Iliff comes to mind. Ed Tapia. Gary Fleeter was another one. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was a young buck. He was um, yeah. pretty close to his first time. And, uh, you know, so, so we had gotten, you especially, Gil, had gotten quite good at holding the hands of first-time directors. Michael Thal comes to mind. That was a, 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 a Dick Donner favor that, that really blew up in our faces. Right. Oh, the, hairstyle, uh, the hairstylist, too. What's his name? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say the hairstylist. Who, whose decision was it that Joel would direct? Was it Joel's idea or was someone else's idea? No, it was Joel's idea. I once went into his office. He called me into the office and, and I said, what's going on? What do you want? And he said, um, I got a great idea. I go, okay, what? And this is where I would hear about different directors and different actors that he wanted to, you know. And I would say, what? And he goes, I'm going to direct an episode. I said, you're going to direct an episode? Yeah. I said, so, so when you direct an episode, are you really directing the episode? So what are you talking to me? Like, of course. I said, okay. And that's when I said, no phones, no, no guests, no visitors. No, 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 nothing outside of what you're doing. You need to be focused on what the camera is seeing and what the actors are doing. And you got to filter that through your eye. That's what the director does. You ready to do that? And he goes, of course I am. What the hell's the matter with you? I've done this more than you have. I said, okay, okay. I just want to make sure everybody has the same rules. You know, I talked this way to Billy Freakin. I talked this way to John Frankenheimer. I just want you to know that those are the rules. And of course, you know, there were no, there were no rules when he, when he came of up, course not. Of but, course but I'll never forget sitting there saying, when he said to me, he's going to direct it. And then he said, and I want Jan de Bont to shoot it. I went, yeah. wait a minute, we have to, um, you know, we have a DP. I know, I know. It doesn't matter. We'll pay him. I don't care. I, I want Jan de Bont. And so, you know, that's how it, that's how that happened. The last night shooting Joel's episode was also the last day of shooting season four. We were using the lobby of the Pantages Theater on Hollywood Boulevard as the casino where we meet the episode star, Joe Pesci. In between setups, as the night dragged on, our star got bored, as stars do. Do you remember shooting on, uh, at the Pantages Theater that night? I absolutely do. Do you remember me and he leaving and going for a walk at four o'clock in the morning down Hollywood Boulevard? You and Pesci? Yeah. Pesci comes over to me. It's about three o'clock in the morning. He goes, say, uh, how much time we got? I go, I, I don't know, uh, half hour. Let's go for a walk. I go, who? You and me. Where? Where are we going to walk? Down the street. I go, it's Hollywood Boulevard. It's the Pantages Theater. It's, it's, I don't think it's safe to just go for a walk at four o'clock in the morning. There's nobody out there. Come on, we'll go for a walk. So I leave and I go with Pesci and we go for a walk. And we walked, I guess, to Highland and nobody was there. And then we walked back. 
And it was one of the funniest things I've ever done because I left the set, which I never would do normally. Um, but it was, you know, in the middle of the night and Pesci wanted to go for a walk. And, and when we came back, he says, you see, was that so terrible? So you went for a walk with me. Is that terrible? You were his bodyguard. And all I could think of because it was Pesci was that we were going to go for a walk and either it was a setup to get me killed <laughs> or we're both going to get killed. The other favor we did for Dick, for Dick um, uh, that lasted for to this day, actually, um, is uh, Elliot Silverstein. Oh, well, Elliot, sure. yeah. Elliot was someone that was very close with Dick. And uh, Dick said, you know, can you do us a favor? And I really would appreciate it. And I said, well, let, let us meet. And I think, Alan, you and I met with with Elliot. And Elliot, you know, was a very big feature guy. Kapaloo and, and uh, Man Paul Horse. Yeah, he won the, the Oscar for, for, for. And so uh, he, you know, he came on to direct one, one of our episodes. And uh, he wound up directing, I think, three episodes, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And and to this day, I'm friendly with Elliot. I mean, I call Elliot will call me, you know, and, and we'll have a chat. He must be. I mean, he won't admit to how old he is, but he must be in his 90s. He's got to be close to 100. Uh, and Elliot had a very particular working style that was that was quite oh, yeah. really unlike anyone else's. I mean, Elliot really saw and pretty much cut the whole show in his head before before yeah. he said action the first time. Well, he, well he, I, do you remember him rewriting your scripts to into shots? Yeah, oh, yeah. So he yeah, would yeah. take your 25-page script and turn it into a 55-page script because literally every oh. cut was in there. Oh, yeah, Extreme yeah, yeah. Extreme close-up, yeah. pull-back. Well, there was know, a, all there the was... camera directions were there. I mean, anyone could have directed it at that point because he had everything but the storyboards. Yeah. It was <laughs> very he, frustrating. I think he yeah. directed one of the episodes, I think, was um, The Reluctant Vampire. If I'm yes, not mistaken, that, was, that was his first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the first yeah. one. And we were shooting in Santa Monica in the theater in Santa Monica. And we came outside and, and he was saying, so I'm lining up. You know, I wanted, I, we were, this was the last, uh, the prep, the last moment of prep before we started shooting. He goes, so I'm going to come out here and I want to shoot down the street. So we have to put dirt, because it was a period piece. We have to put dirt for the next three blocks away. And I go, no, 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 Elliot, Elliot, no, we, we don't do that. But dirt for the next three blocks. Yeah, because I want to look all the way. <laughs> and I said, no, Elliot, we don't sure. do that. We, the, the way we can do that is. Um, wet it down too. We could, we could put some dirt like, you know, over like the next 50 feet and then angle the camera off of, off of the dirt, just yeah. angle it off. No, 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 no. I want to see that. I want to see way into the distance. I want to see. And I said, Elliot, we don't do that. That's not this move. That's not this show. It's not Tales from the Crypt. And I just remember having terrible fights with him creatively about what he was going to shoot until he shot it. And the irony is that I guess because of that relationship on that first one, and then, you know, we sort of felt, you know, we, he, he needed to work some more and we wanted to give him a job again. Um, well, we actually became hams. quite friendly. Was the second one, Well Cooked Hams with, with Billy Zane. And then he did a last one with, um, which was mainly on the stage, and we we created a forest. Yes. Yeah, and he drove he drove Chris Faluna crazy on that episode yes. because it couldn't be blue enough. Right. He wanted it bluer. Yeah. And the, it was Paul Abascal that we were thinking of earlier. Paul Abascal, yeah. Paul Abascal, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was Actually, also Martin. There was also Martin von something or other. Oh, von Hasselberg, oh. uh, Bette Midler's husband. Bette Midler's yeah. husband. Yeah. I, I I don't think he had directed before or since. Yeah. Yeah. And Gil, I still use a line that I heard you say to Russell Mulcahy in London, where 
um, we during the production meeting, um, Russell says, I really want a wet down for this scene by the train station. And you said, you better hope it rains. <laughs> <laughs> I use that all the time. Every time a DP says to me, I want a wet down that night. I'm like, you better hope it rains. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Russell became a good friend too. Russell, I still talk to these days. Um, it, it's funny how- Terrific director. Guys... Russell was great. What, what a great visual director. Okay. I, ran into, I ran into Russell at all places at 2 a.m. in Atlanta. He was shooting the pilot for Teen Wolf. And I had right. done like four right. shows in Atlanta at the time. And um, my former hairstylist department head was like, hey, I'm working on Teen Wolf with the director. I think you know Russell Mulcahy. I said, oh, hell, where are you guys? So I showed up. And like I said, they were shooting all night. It was like 2 a.m. in a forest in Atlanta. And I just kind of walk on the video village and I sit down in a chair right behind Russell. And I don't say anything. And, you know, he looks at me a couple of times and he just keeps looking back at me like, I know this guy from somewhere. And suddenly he goes, is Ed? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, gives me a big hug. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty awesome. But he had no clue, you know, why I popped up on a set at 2 a.m. on a Friday night in Atlanta, Georgia. What, what, why does that not belong here? <laughs> I've seen him a number of times in Australia. In fact, almost every time I, I go to Australia, I go, oh, gee, I should find out if he's in Australia. And invariably he is. And we'll get together and have dinner or brunch or something and, and go for a walk and chat for a little bit. I've seen him a few times in L.A., um, but he's still working. He's still he's still yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, he should. Uh, do you have any memory, other memories of of, uh, of uh, Joel's directorial debut, Ed? No, that was actually the season before I joined you guys. Oh, was it? Was um, it was I had it? heard oh. the stories. Yeah, I remember. I, I, Rick, I always, I always assumed that you were there forever, Ed. Yeah, yeah no, Rick. I, re too. I remember. Uh, um, how could we possibly have done it? Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. There was no season before you, Ed. <laughs> you're, you're making that up. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I joined you guys when you were um, you were finishing five, and um, you had uh, you had just wrapped. I mean, just like a couple of days before. And you were at the offices in Gower with uh, George Burns. Oh, oh, oh yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Just, just uh, that was. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, and what yeah. I remember from that time is people like um, Bob. How did Kurtz you? How, how, how did you come to us? Let, let, let's, let's take a step back. Since, since, since we're here, we're, we're going to be introducing Victoria Burroughs. Victoria Burroughs. I was temping at MGM, and uh, Victoria knew I was looking for a gig, and she called me one day and said, "Hey, the Tales from the Crib guys are looking for an assistant. Are you interested?" I said, "Hell yeah, I love that show." And um, I, I met with you guys and uh, you guys tired me. And I found out later you only had money for a couple of weeks in the budget for me because <laughs> of rap. And you guys were pitching like crazy. And I remember taking a call from a very young Quentin Tarantino wanting to know how he can direct an episode of Tales. And, you know, Bob Kurtzman was there all the time with. Uh, I hope the you told him to fuck pushing. off. I'm sorry. I hope you told Quentin to fuck off. I think we told, I think I gave him to, to you, Gil, and you talked to him and basically said, no, yeah, no. call us kid when you've done something. No, no, no. He, he ultimately, actually, he, he <laughs> came in and we, we, and we met with him. Well, he never forgot. <laughs> you know why he never forgot? Right. When I was leaving for uh, Australia with Brian Singer to go to do Superman Returns, we were sitting in the lounge, the first class lounge at LAX, and sitting across from us was Tarantino, who knew Brian, and he was flying to London. We were flying, you know, west or east, no, west, and he was going east to London. And so we sat there and, and, and Brian introduced me and he just looked at me and he went, and, and he remembered. And he had some nice, not nice things to say at the moment. But I said, 
you can forget about it. You know, you're you're a bigger star than I've ever become. You let it go. <laughs> and and, he, and he, I think he looked at me and said, never, never. <laughs> yeah, but I remember um, you guys came close to setting up that Kurtzman script with Kurtzman directing that Tarantino yeah. had written. Um, that ended up being Clooney, you know, the Clooney ended up doing a few years later. Um, oh, God, what was it called? Um, <clears throat> oh, uh, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, the one yeah, I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Yes, um, yes, um, yes. And, uh, and what, the other thing I remember, too, is meeting George Burns because of you guys. Mm-hmm. You know, just walking down the hallway, and uh, one day he was just outside of his office. I introduced myself, and he was as nice as could be. Sure, sure. Remember yeah. my story about George Burns? I don't remember. Uh, I, first of all, George Burns was one of my heroes. I mean, I just, I would do anything to meet George Burns. I would do anything to, to see him. And so one day, I'm, and I, I didn't know he had offices at Gower. And one day I drive in and I'm parking my car. And as I'm parking my car, like three cars over, I see this older man get out, a younger, you know, like guy in his 50s or 60s helping him. And with, he's with a cane. And I go, oh my God, that guy looks so much like George Burns. I can't believe it. And, you know, I watch him and he goes inside. His office was on the first floor. I think our office was on the second floor. And I came upstairs and I think I, I said, maybe to you, Ed, or someone, I said, the building, I couldn't believe it. it looks just like George Burns. And someone said to me, no, that is George Burns. And I was like, get out of here. Yeah, that was me. Oh, he's, yeah. got a, he's got yeah. an office downstairs. So a few days later, I come in. Same thing happens. Guy gets out. and you know, I had some things to carry up from the car. So I'm getting them out of the car. Entranceway, I look down the hallway and I see uh, uh, George Burns with boxer shorts on, no pants. And he's walking across the hall from his office into the men's room. And I'm like, I wonder what happened. So I walk down there and I'm thinking to myself, should I, should I go into the men's room? I'm going, no. I went into the office and I, I knocked on the door. It was open. I walk in there, a guy smoking a cigar, looks at me, he goes, what can I do for you? And I said, um, I, I think I just saw uh, Mr. Burns uh, cross the hallway without his pants on. And the guy looks, puffed on a cigar and said, yeah. And I said, yeah. So, so is, is, is that okay? I mean, is he, is, is, he, is he okay doing that? And he goes, yeah, he does it occasionally. He doesn't want to pee on his pants. So he takes them off and he voices into, into the men's room. He's fine. He's okay. And so I went, oh, so now I, I go to leave. And as I'm leaving the office, the bathroom door, which is right across, opens up. And George comes out without his pants on. He's in his, he's in his shorts. And I went, uh, oh, hello, Mr. Burns. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And I said, hello, Mr. Burns. And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sort of pushed me aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I used to walk down. I mean, our office was on the second floor. I would walk down past his office to the stairs at the end of the hallway to get up to our offices, as opposed to taking the elevator or the stairs in the lobby. Yeah. Just so I could see if he was there every day. Because he always had the door open and, you know, you could, and it just reeked of the cigar smoke. But the pictures on the wall were just amazing. I just liked seeing that. And cut two years later, I became um, really good friends with uh, uh, Rich Little. And Rich, you know, he uh, he was very gracious to me. You know, after Valkyrie and I got involved with the veterans, um, I, I was raising money for veterans and I wanted to bring in comics from Vegas. And I had uh, I had um, a big rock band as well. And I called up I called up Rich 
told them what I was doing. And I said, you know, I'll put you up at the finest hotel in LA. I'll pay for it. I need you in, I, you know, we're doing this benefit for at the Playboy Mansion. Uh, we're going to roast Hefner. Um, um, I've got uh, big, this big rock band coming in. And, and uh, could you come in? And he said, yeah. And I, and I spoke to his manager and I said, okay, just tell me what hotel he wants to stay. And she called me back. She said, well, where are you staying? And I said, I live in LA. I'm, I, I'm staying at home in my house. And she said, well, that's where Rick, that's where he wants to stay. Rich wants to stay there. And I said, Rich wants to stay where? At your house. So he stayed in my house. Oh, nice. And and I go for the I go for a sound check the next morning to the Playboy Mansion. And my wife calls me and she goes, "Where are you?" I go, "What do you mean where am I? I told you I'm I'm at the Playboy Mansion. We're doing a sound check for tonight. Why? Well, Rich is in the kitchen making breakfast, and he wants to know when you're coming back. And now while we're having breakfast, I, so I came back and I had breakfast with Rich, and I'm telling him, you know, about he's telling me about George Burns and he's telling me about all the people that he does, and I'm telling him how much I love George Burns and how much, and I tell him the story about seeing him in his, in his underwear. And from that day on to this day, anytime I've seen a rich before he says hello to me, he'll do this. <laughs> he'll give me the eyes and the cigar thing to have George Burns or he'll, or he'll do an impression of George Burns on the phone. And I'll go, who is this? And not knowing that, you know, and I'll, and then I'll realize, and I go, rich, and it was just, uh, you know, he, I, he, he just gets me every time when he does that. I, I just, I, I love George Burns. It is, it is always funny, the people we've gotten to even just bump into in this town. It's, it's, it's amazing. You, you, you do get to bump into your heroes here. Yeah. I mean, to me, of all the people we got to work with, the person to this day who I'm most excited about was Buck Henry. To me, Buck Henry was God because he, he wrote The Graduate. Right, right. You know, and, and for me, you know, it's funny because working with you guys, I got to meet, you know, several of my filmmaking heroes uh, from a directing point of view. But when we were shooting House on Haunted Hill, I don't think I've ever told you guys this story. I was a huge, huge Jack Lemmon fan growing up. Sure. And the three people I wanted to meet were Jack Lemmon, Robert Redford and Paul Newman when I was a kid. And um, I got to meet Mr. Redford when I was in Utah last year, which was awesome. His, his daughter helped set it up. And um I never got to meet Mr. Newman, but when we were shooting House on Haunted Hill, I don't know if you guys remember, they were doing a TV movie next door in the stage next door with uh, George C. Scott and Jack Lemmon. And I would sneak onto that set whenever I could just to see them work. I didn't know anybody on the set. And um, this is before 9-11. So see, there was no real security. You could just walk onto the set. And I would watch, I would hang out. I never got to see him, never got to meet him. And I don't know if you remember, but I used to bring my dog Zeke to work. He was a puppy. And one day I'm in the back of the stages walking Zeke and I hear, and forgive me if I get emotional, but it's still cool to me. I hear that's a beautiful German shepherd. And Jack Lemon was out there with his dog. Wow. He used to bring his dog to work and he would walk it behind the stage just where I used to walk Zeke. And we okay. sat there for 30 minutes talking about life. I told him what a big fan I was. And while our two dogs kind of played and, you know, <laughs> pissed and shitted, you know, in the field. And we chatted there for like 20 minutes before an AD came and said, Mr. Lemon, they're ready for you on set. And um, I remember telling Matt, our accountant, because you guys were on like a scout or something. You guys weren't there. Um, and uh, Gil, you were on a scout. I don't think, I don't, I don't think you were on that. I was, and, uh, um, I was gone already. Yeah, yeah. But I remember telling Matt, the accountant, and because uh, and, he, he had seen me out the window. 
He's like, who are you talking to out there? You were there out there for a while. And I was like, not going to believe it. it was freaking Jack Lemon. <laughs> yeah, just me and Jack, Jack shooting the shit. You know, Jack Lemon was a was sort of a neighbor of mine, although I never knew where he lived, but he needed to get, he, he used to come through the gates where I lived up on Beaumont. He, he somehow got the code. And so I spent half of my time trying to prevent people from going through the gate. So one day I see this car go through the gate and I'm, I don't recognize the car. And I go, I come out of my house and I'm looking at this car and this guy, you know, swerves around me. And I look at the driver and it's Jack Lemon. And I, I, I sort of gave him the finger like, no, you're not supposed to come through the gate. And he sort of shrugged his shoulders like, you got me, I'm guilty. <laughs> and then from that time on, every time I would see him in the gate, he would do that. In fact, once in a while, or he, or he would wave to me. We never met, we never spoke, but it was you were exciting. Gate you were the yeah. gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, like I said, I, I was... Um... I've been I've been blessed by the amount of people that uh, I've got meeting. You know, they say never meet your heroes, and I say it's about 50-50. Half the time they've been dicks, and the other half they've been amazing. Hmm. I I was so sure Dennis Miller was going to be a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> One last quick story about another of the actors we cast in Joel's episode. Joey Pants, the always terrific Joey Pantaleon. At that time, I had been unemployed for quite a long time and I had let my hair grow. And I, my, my promise to myself was I will cut my hair the day I get hired for something. And my hair was seriously down to nearly my ass. Wow. It, was not, it was not pretty, it was not pretty. Uh, but there it was. And then I got cast on, on The Outer Limits and I just never got around to cutting my hair and you know, spent a couple months in the writer's room getting the scripts ready and then we're up in Vancouver starting to, to into production. And my show was the first episode of the season that they were going to shoot. And we had Joey Pants. And uh, Joey Pants, before he got into acting, he was a hair cutter, a hairstylist. Oh, wow. Which I didn't... Which I, I I don't know why that was in my head, but someone someone had told me that, and and Joey on the first day that we worked together, he said, "God, man, you got to cut your hair," and I said, "All right, man, if you do it, it'll happen," and he said, "Okay," and so Joey Pants cut my hair. <laughs> I have pictures, I have Polaroids of Joey Pantoliano cutting my hair, and and, and was it, it was it a good haircut? He did a great job. I, I looked human for, for, for the first time in probably half a decade. Now, there's a footnote to all this that relates to one of the larger issues that impacted Bordello. Intrusive casting by executive producers with ulterior motives. I wrote that first Outer Limits episode about a Howard Stern-type shock jock with a Dennis Leary kind of energy and speech rhythm. But my executive producer on Outer Limits, Richard Lewis, like Joel, he liked to cast the leads, and he had other ideas and ulterior motives, his privileges as executive producer. He cast Joey Pants, whose energy and speech rhythms are much more low-key and laconic, not better or worse, just different. Now, Richard loved my script so much that he insisted it go first that season. I was truly honored. But when the first day's dailies hit Los Angeles... I got a panicked phone call from Richard. How can you let Joey do this to your script? And I said, do what? He said, he's doing it all wrong. His rhythm's all wrong. You, 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 you got to tell him he's got to do it differently. And I said, who was the director? A guy named Neil Fernley. Neil's a lovely director, but 
Richard was asking for something impossible. That was Richard was 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 reacting to the fact that the script was written one way and he cast it the other. Right. Right. That's what he was right. reacting to. And I said to him, Richard, I'm not going to say any such thing to my to my lead actor, and certainly not on the first day I'm working with him. I said, look, I didn't write this for Joey Pants. I wrote it, and I said to him, I wrote it for a Dennis Leary kind of an energy. I said, once you cast Joey, the die was cast. You know, Joey can only be Joey. I, you know, and, and my feeling about actors is we don't, I don't, I've never cast an actor to act. I want them, I want them to be. For God's sake, please don't act. That'll end up on the cutting room floor. Just be, please. Be so, so the camera can see you being honest about, you know, emotionally honest. That, that, that's, that's what I'm wanting an actor to do. Uh, the last thing I need is, is Joey Pants trying to be Dennis Leary. Right. I said, no, absolutely not. If, if you want to call, you know, our actor and tell him that you can go do that, but I absolutely will not. I'm quite happy with Joey. Not how I would have cast it, but now that we have Joey, right. I'm happy. Of course, Richard never called Joey. And, and in fact, I had a great relationship with Richard thereafter. A great yeah. relationship. I, I, I wish I'd had that relationship with Joel. Yeah. But then again, don't we all? On the next bonus episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast, The Making of Bordello of Blood, we're going to make one last visit to the cutting room floor. Hey, it's showbiz. Sequels, that's what we do. See you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrific Crypt content.